Good morning, guys. How about you open your Bibles to two passages this morning? So John chapter 3, verse 16, pretty famous, familiar passage, I'm sure most of you. So we'll look at that, number one. Secondly is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. So as I mentioned earlier, this is the beginning of the season of what we commonly know know as Advent. Um, It's one of the seasons throughout the year that we just kind of pause and reflect upon the importance of a certain massive theological idea or concept. So if you guys don't have Bibles, go ahead and raise your hand. We have so much that would love to get you a Bible. Um, But it's also a time for us to really uh, consider certain themes that kind of come out of the text and come out of these seasons. And traditionally throughout the Christian history, the themes that get oftentimes really focused on or thought about in this season. Um, let me, hold on, let me pause, pause on a theme thing. I'm going to come back to that. Um, if you guys would like, I have a resource guide that was created for you guys. It's a way of kind of walking you through this. There's some videos for you to go ahead and watch if you would like. That would be helpful for you. If you've got kids, we've got like an entire book list in there. There's some um, references and other books that you can pick up and purchase and check out. Um, it's just a way of just kind of resourcing you with other information that would help you uh, navigate this season really, really well. Um, and as was mentioned earlier, there's you know several reasons why we do this. We see this as the unique opportunity to really uh, pay some special focused attention upon what the season's all about. But now back on track with regard to some of these themes. There's at least four different themes that oftentimes get really brought out in this season, and they'll all kind of make sense as you look at them. So I'm going to read John chapter 3, verse 16. I'll read these, and then I'll kind of talk a little bit about those massive themes, uh, which are number one, hope, love, peace, and joy. And I would like each week as we just kind of pause and reflect and think about each one of these important themes that are massive biblical themes. Uh, I would even argue that they're massive needed themes for human beings to really thrive and flourish. And if uh, these themes are absent from a person's life, then we just find ourselves languishing in despair, desperation. We find ourselves going through life just destroyed or ruined or broken. Um, This Christmas season or every Christmas season way to remind us of what Jesus has done, to invite us back into really kind of the heartbeat of what all of this is all about. And to do that well, I think John 3.16 is this great encapsulated uh, version of all of these themes just kind of there. So let me go ahead and read this, and then we're going to skip forward to Romans chapter 5, and we'll kind of uh, spend the rest of our time really kind of thinking about that. So John 3.16 says this, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I think each one of these passages or each one of these themes come out really nicely within this one simple passage. Obviously, the idea of hope is tethered to this concept of God. This idea of love is obviously tethered to this idea of what God has done in sending his son. This idea of peace is deeply tethered to Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, and he brings about our peace uh, through the reconciliation he brings forth. Again, a lot of big words. We'll unpack some of these. And then lastly, the idea of joy. Of course, we all know joy to the world, these significant themes throughout the Bible. And this is deeply tethered to the concept of eternal life, eternal life. So with that being said, I think there's a lot of passages that we can spend thinking about and digesting each one of these themes. The one that I really want to focus on, at least for today, is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I want to go ahead and read this to you guys. You can think about it, listen to it, and then we'll begin to jump in and take a look at the significance specifically of the theme this week of hope. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. So, Jesus, right now, we ask you again that you'd open our hearts. Uh, God, no matter what type of circumstances we may be finding ourselves going through, 
that in this moment right now, God, I pray that the scripture would come to life and cast a picture for us of who you are, what you've come to do, and how you've invited us to follow Jesus with all of our hearts, even in the middle of a world that's gone mad, that's filled with despair and deceptions. And so God, right now, we ask you that you would refocus our attention upon really the central theme of all themes in this season, which is Jesus. And so we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul would summarize these words. He'd say this, since, verse one, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not, that, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8, so just, it's not up on the screen, just listen to it. Just for while we were still weak, anybody weak? <laughs> he says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person might even dare to die. But God shows his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, still in a state, still in the status of sin, Christ died for us. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to jump in and I want to think about this idea of hope. It's critical for our survival, for our thriving. Um, And as I was doing some research and thinking about this, I always like to just kind of go broad and think, how does culture typically think about certain topics that are central to the theme of the Bible? And I was thinking about, like, how does this concept of hope even kind of play out in the general secularized world? So I was looking up some psychological benefits to hope and how certain beliefs shape that, and these were some major things that they were describing. Benefits of hope, in other words, the idea when you have hope, when hope is there, when you can identify if a person is living in a state of hope, they find themselves with a deep sense of purpose and or meaning. They find themselves having and dealing with positive emotions, obviously as a poor, as opposed to poor mental health. They find themselves in lower levels of depression, and they find themselves in states of less loneliness, which is kind of fascinating when I was thinking about that. Uh, and to sort of, you know, even further um, dissect this concept, as I was thinking about this, is that if you live, to put it in a very practical note, if you and I live in a continual state where there is a deep sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness or a constant chronic ache of poor mental health, or you find yourself in regular bouts of despair or depression and or consistently lonely, these may be markers that your life has hope. These may be signs that something is absent from your life that you desperately need, and the question then becomes, where will you go to obtain it? And this is the beauty of, you know, being human beings. We are really good and creative at crafting hope-formed means to satisfy people's ache and longing for hopelessness. So we do that through all sorts of means of distraction. I think 
you know, our nice little devices, our great little, you know, uh, hope replacements. So in other words, you lack some hope, just go ahead and dive, take a deep dive here, which, by the way, does not help the hopeless state. In fact, sometimes probably exacerbates it, makes you even more hopeless, especially where you find yourself going. If you find yourself uh, satisfying or trying to uh, anesthetize the ache and the pain that's in your soul of hopelessness, you may even just compound it by the various things and detours that you might find yourself going into. In other words, it will not help you. But the fact of the matter is, it's just found it fascinating that as human beings, we need hope. And the whole theme of Christmas, the whole theme of Jesus coming to this world is all about giving us a true sense of hope, not a counterfeit, not a replacement for hope. Uh, I think as our culture continues to drift away from its Judeo-Christian moorings and value system into a more secularized, detached version of life uh, that's separated from God, we will find ourselves, I am convinced, delving deeper into states of hopelessness, suicidal ideations, combined with more fabricated technological means to satisfy our ache for something real and genuine. And watch, as technology continues to unfold, we just become better at being able to provide cheaper, less satisfying alternatives that will somehow at some point try to replace the absence of hope that you and I so desperately need. So with that being said, how do we anchor ourselves or tether ourselves really to a true biblical hope. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time just considering and thinking about. So first of all, I want to just kind of cast a little vision of what I think this looks like. Number one, a biblical hope is ultimately framed around a glorious God, a present God, and a faithful God. And this is all found within the little passage of Romans, which we'll unpack in a second here. So number one, I think it's found in a glorious God. Let me read this little passage again. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So whatever it is, hope is, Paul says that this hope is tethered to something of substance and of value. The idea of glory is, is an important one to consider. It's a word that we really don't use very often. I mean, we do use it periodically in our modern culture, and I think it has a wide variety of usage. But really the idea from a biblical standpoint is this idea of uh, weightiness. In the Old Testament, the word glory is used, uh, it's the, I, I believe it's the word chabad, C-H-A-B-O-D, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. And it basically means something of weight or significance or value. Um, we get various elements of or associations with glory. If you've been around somebody that is, I don't know, let's say, for example, they are a celebrity or an internet influencer, and you're in their presence, or a politician that has a high level of respect, just standing in their presence feels something of value or weightiness. Have you ever experienced that? That's, that's glory. That's the idea of glory. Now, how would you kind of upscale that when you talk about a God that is all-glorious? Imagine being in the presence of an all-glorious God that is literally worthy of every ounce of respect and worship and honor and glory that the universe has to muster to give and distribute over back to him. This is that God. And Paul says Biblical hope ultimately is framed around this glorious God. I love to contrast that with so much that our world seeks to constantly offer us, cheap alternatives. Um, I like to collect 
cameras. And I have a ton of like old school cameras, like old school Canons and Nikons and whatnot. And I also like to collect newer cameras. And I like to compare them because the old cameras are not like the new cameras in any way, shape, or form. I mean, obviously, the various obvious things aside from digital versus analog, so on and so forth. But uh, the big idea is the way that old cameras were made. And I always kind of wonder in my mind, why can't they make new cameras with all the new technology with an old body? Right? You know, it's all metal and just feels really something in your hand of significance. You can feel the weight of it. And, you, you know, we see the same thing with regard to, like, the dishwashers that you buy and the, you know, the, the things that you throw around your kitchen. Some things of older value. But things today are made in such a way that, so that they will break down because it's a system. The system's made that way so that you only have, you know, a dishwasher for three to five years and then you got to buy a new one. It's just made that way. But think about that. As human beings, we long for something to fix our hope into, fix our lives upon. And yet, so oftentimes what we're doing is we're fixing our lives to things that will constantly break down. And when those things break down, we're left in another state of desperation. And so the invitation of the gospel is to anchor your hope in something of substance or weightiness or value or Paul's word, glory. Glory. So biblical hope, first of all, is framed around a glorious God. Secondly, it's framed around a present God. And this is the idea where it describes Jesus, come, he's Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us. And in this passage right here, he says, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And again, he uses all the ideas and the themes that we're going to be looking at, unpacking those. Here he identifies the concept of the peace of God. We'll look at that at some point over the next few weeks. But he describes that this hope that we have ultimately is framed around a God who's with us. He's not absent. We don't have to somehow go find him. We don't have to go out on some long adventure and make massive sacrifices of everything that we have in order to somehow find him. Hopefully we'll find him. If not, we might die in the journey, finding him. But the fact of the matter is that, no, he's a God that actually comes into our world and finds us. This is the story of the Bible, that God sees us as lost, knows us as having gone astray, and comes after us, seeks after us. This is a God who's present. And I was think, thinking about this, that throughout the entirety of the Bible, we see, for example, John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, in the... I think it's the New Living Translation, I think, or the message. I don't really always use this translation very often because it's more of like a paraphrase and sometimes it can be pretty loose in its translation. But I really like the way that this gets translated in here in the message. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That captures very carefully what the incarnation is all about. That Jesus, God, the eternal God, steps into our world, moves into our neighborhood, takes upon himself flesh and blood. I don't know how that impacts you or how you even think about that, but this is the very heart and the nature of the story of recognizing Jesus coming into this world, what we would celebrate as Christmas. I was thinking about different ways throughout the history of the church in which some key writers and scholars and theologians and pastors had thought about Jesus coming to this world. So here, I'll just give you a handful of them. Uh, Irenaeus, uh, he lived in 130 to 202, very early, shortly after Jesus came. He said this, God recapitulated himself in the form of man that he might kill sin, 
deprive death of its power and vivify humanity. That's a word you don't use very often. You can use it today. You can hang out at your party tonight, Christmas party, and be like, God just came to vivify us. And you sound really smart. But the idea is that this is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to kill sin. In order for him to kill sin, he had to take upon himself the form of man. And just martyr, another early church leader said this, we worship and love the word who is from the unbegotten God since also he became man for our sakes that becoming a partaker of our sufferings, he might also bring us his healing. So this is, again, ideas consistent with the teaching of the early church, consistent with the Bible, that Jesus had an intention in his mind to bring about healing and wholeness, the destruction of sin, of all the things that are in this world that are causing the pain and suffering in our lives, and our world. The way he did that was he took upon himself our humanity to allow whatever happens in our humanity to come upon him in order for him to basically undo all of the brokenness in this world. This is the hope of the incarnation. Augustine said this, he lived around 300. He says, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, and that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is how Christians have always understood the incarnation, God coming into our world for a very distinct purpose, to undo that which is broken and evil and death-laden in our world. John of Damascus, around 600, he said this, God the Word was made man for this reason, that the very nature which had sinned, had, had sinned, had become fallen, had become corrupt, should conquer the tyrant who had deceived it. So again, another insight is that God came to do something with the tyrant. What is the tyrant? This is obviously the evil one, the devil, uh, to undo the works of the evil one in order to bring about a release from the death, decay, and destruction that you and I all find ourselves dealing with on a day-to-day basis. This is what we see in our news. This is what we try to process and make sense of on really bad Instagram websites and images and pictures that flash across our screen that leave our souls stained with death and murder and brokenness. This is the type of stuff that we see unfolding in the Middle East or in parts of our world where there's bloodshed or violence or death or destruction. That this is the stuff that even though we may not necessarily ourselves be dealing with it, we are dealing with the effects of the trauma that we see as a result of it being on our screens and then having to process that. This is the type of stuff that Jesus says, I've come to deal with. How? By letting it destroy him. And this is what we see happening, taking place. Dorothy Sayers, if you're familiar with her, she's a famous writer. She said this, one of her famous quotes. She said, Jesus of Nazareth was in every respect a genuine living man. He was not merely a man so good as to be, quote unquote, like God. He was God. For what it means is this, among other things, that whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited, suffering, and subject to sorrows and death, he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine, 
Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. Why? to do what we've been talking about, to undo the very things that we find ourselves constantly facing and dealing with. She goes on to say this, another final quote, and I'll be done, move on to the next thing. This is the outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions, he lay down and became a man like the men he had made. And the man he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is both the victim and the hero. We find so dull. I love the way she writes, just dealing with this sappy sarcasm because those are the types of things that oftentimes awaken our souls to like, ah, I've grown bored of this story. This season is an attempt to awaken us from that boredom. This season is an attempt to awaken us to the reality of what Jesus has done by stepping into this world, by confronting the forces of evil and darkness and destruction and death and despair, taking it upon himself in order to bring us into a whole new way of living. And then lastly, we see that biblical hope not only involves a glorious God or is framed around a present God, but lastly, we also see that it is framed around a faithful God, or in other words, a God who has unchanging character. Listen to how he goes on to say this in this last little segment. This hope does not put us to shame because of God's love. It's been shed abroad in our hearts. But the point that I would make is this. He uses this phrase, this hope does not put us to shame. That word shame that's used there, some other translations, you might have a various one that might say, it doesn't leave you disappointed. Um, as I was reading this, I was thinking, this hope that we have, I don't know, for whatever reason, the image that came to my mind is like someone standing at the altar waiting for their spouse to come, and then the spouse never shows up. That's shameful. That's a moment of incredible traumatizing shame that a person will probably never spend or never forget and spend the rest of their life going through therapy trying to deal with that reality of shame. But what I'm envisioning as I'm reading this, this is like God's way of saying, I will never leave you at the altar. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I am the faithful one that will always, always show up in the proper timing. I am the faithful one. And this is the hope that we have. So biblical hope is literally framed around these ideas. Everything in our world right now is subject to change, entropy, mutations, death. But this God that Jesus comes to represent, this God that Jesus says, I am in the flesh, this is the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's ultimately coming to help us to trust him to bring us into a place of looking to him, calling upon him. Now, we live in a culture today that is, like I said, fast trying to remove any presence of God in our culture. And so as a result of that, we find ourselves with these replacements. So one of the key replacements that I've recently been noticing a lot come up is like manifesting. If you guys are familiar with that, manifesting. Like, just manifest your future. 
Manifest your reality. Just speak it into the world and it will come into being. The more you manifest it, the more you speak it, the more you make it come to pass, it will just simply come to pass. What are these? These are simply attempts to make, to bring about reality into your life in the absence of a God who's faithful. Or you have another one, which is like, just trust your lucky stars, or just hope in the power of the universe, or just hope in some sort of power that's in our world. The fact of the matter is, is that whatever power there is in the universe, it does not care about you. I want to repeat that. The universe does not have compassion or empathy towards you. It is cold and unforgiving. That's the fact. And it also is subject to decay via entropy. But where do we go to then? The invitation for us is to turn to this God who's deeply committed to this human project. How much committed is he to this human project? So much so, he takes upon the project's flesh and blood. So much so, he enters into this world. So much so, he unites himself to the very thing that he started. So much so, that as he comes into this world, he himself also takes upon himself the very types of suffering that you and I find ourselves dealing with on a regular basis. So the question that we have to wrestle with and think about is this is the facts of the incarnation. It's there. It changed history. People's lives from the very beginning, which I just read a bunch of them to you, from the very beginning have believed this story. We as Christians today, 2,000 years removed in an entirely different continent, we still hold to the same teachings. Uh, I've said this before, that we are not here trying to innovate or make Christianity cool and tolerable to this world. We're trying to simply be faithful to what has been shown in Scripture and has been lived through the ages. And part of that central message is the need for hope and that that hope is tethered to a God who's faithful, who's good, who's unchanging, who's ultimately present. So the question that we have to really think through is, do I trust this God? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to say, I will place my confidence in him. And when that happens, this idea of hope begins to arise. Let me finish on a story in terms of just personal life. Like, I wasn't expecting him doing this, but one of the things that my wife and I have had a lot of conversations on over the past several years is we've been doing ministry for 30 years, like our, our entire life, our entire adult life. Like we moved here in 1993. We started a church in our house and watched God do some cool stuff. And we've watched moments of just extreme elation and goodness and beauty. And, and then we've also had moments of just insane gut-wrenching pain and hardship that had to do with loss and suffering and challenges and rejection and all of these things. And we found ourselves more so over the past three to five years just been like, why are we doing this? It kind of sucks. Like, I can think of 30 different jobs I would probably love to do. 
But then, you know, we always go back and just say, you know, I'm not, no, I'm not questioning anything. I go back and I'm like, we know that God's called us to this. We're deeply committed to whatever it is that God's called us to. But we also know with that, there comes a price. And part of that price is pain and hardship and difficulty. But the question is, is I find myself in the middle of like kind of a quandary. Because on the one hand, I, I have a deep awareness of what God's calling us to. But on the other hand, I also realize that that involves insane amount of suffering and pain and loss and hardship and difficulty and just soul-sucking, you know, life-destroying reality. I mean, honestly, like, I, I you know, I, I'm just gonna stop right there. But how do we make sense of this? Like, where do we live above just the gutter? Because, I, you know, I've, I've watched part of this journey as well, people that have been in the same situations as me, and it doesn't end well with them. They might, on extreme ends, commit suicide. I've seen that happen. Pastors kill themselves. I've watched, on the other hand, pastors sabotage their life by having an affair. I don't want to do that either. Pastors just bomb out. Or they get divorced. And I'm like, I don't want to go those paths either. And so the question that my wife and I have consistently always come back to is like, we have no other option except hope. We literally have no other option. There's no other avenue available for us to go. I don't despair that option, though it might have bouts with that. Depression, laying in fetal form might happen for a few days, but I can't make that my normal. My normal. So, so where do we go? And it always goes back to hope. And that's always tethered to Jesus. And it reminds me that I'm not alone because even though we find ourselves in a state of challenge and hardship and difficulty. We're not alone because we have a God who is present with us. And we have a host of faithful people that have been faithful to following Jesus all throughout the ages. So with that, I want to finish just with this little passage out of the book of Revelation. I'm done. In fact, I'm going to have Mikey come on up. He's going to lead us in a song as we close. And as he's getting ready to lead us in a song, I just want you to listen real carefully to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. And this is sort of a summary verse of these events that John, the revelator, is describing for us about this God who offers us hope in a world where there's a lot of pain and suffering and despair. Listen to what he says. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, this is at some point of a future state, saying, look, or behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, God himself will be with them, and they will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older order or the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And this is the promise that Christmas reminds us of that Jesus has not abandoned this planet. He's not abandoned you. He's with you. Our task, our task, first and foremost, is to repent from sin, to let go of those besetting sins that easily ensnare us or slow us down or keep us lagging behind, and also faith, have confidence in this one who's gone before us, who's run this race. He endured the cross, and this host of other people that have also gone ahead of us. 
and they've found Jesus faithful, and they've been able to place an anchor, tether their hope in this God who is ultimately faithful, present, and good. That's our invitation. So in closing, I want to invite you to stand right now as we sing, as we worship. I want to pray over us right now as we lift up our voice to just in one final confessional act of proclamation and praise, declare, for you to declare his praises. So Jesus, we thank you for our time together here this morning. We ask God right now that you would just help us to lift up our voices and to proclaim your goodness because that's who you are. And because you're good, because you're faithful, because you're present, we can have hope even in the midst of painful circumstances. We can trust you even when life is hard. So we worship you even now, Jesus.